Anyway, we're in Psalm 122. If you'd like to open your Bible there and navigate on your device so you can follow along with the word. Psalm 122. The topic, the pilgrim arrives at Jerusalem and ascends the hill to the house of the Lord. The title of our message, House on Hallowed Hill. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for getting us this far into the service, Lord. Uh, hopefully our hearts are attuned and prepared to listen to your word. We're going to talk about how you are in our midst today by your spirit and walking in our midst, Lord, in a very powerful way. And I pray that we would know that and sense that and be changed by that. Help us to pay attention, Lord, to your words and your whisperings, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Each evening at 6.30 p.m., the California Highway Patrol closed off Highway 198 between Highway 41 and the Avenel Cutoff in order for a film production crew's activities to be uninterrupted by regular traffic. The film, of course, was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in that order. It's the story of businessman Neil Page, played by Steve Martin, desperately trying to get home to Chicago from New York City in time for Thanksgiving dinner with his family. He encounters a series of travel setbacks and delays along the way, begrudgingly teaming up with a shower curtain ring salesman, Del Griffith, played by John Candy. Uh, together, they traverse the Midwestern United States using planes, trains, and automobiles in a hilariously frustrating effort to get home. Highway 198 was transformed into a wintry Midwest highway. It's the scene where a car pulls up next to them and the couple in the car keep shouting, you're going the wrong way. They were on the wrong side of the freeway going the wrong way. Once they realize they are going the wrong way, it's too late to avoid two semis coming right at them. They end up driving in between the trucks, tearing their rental car to shreds. The car remains comically drivable for the remainder of the movie. When they arrive at their hotel, John Candy looks at the damage and says, well, this isn't so bad. I thought it would be a lot worse than this. They'll be able to buff this out, no problem. Their journey resonates with us because of the common desire to be home, gathered with loved ones in order to give thanks. In our psalm, we read, the tribes go up to Jerusalem to give thanks to the Lord. That's in verse 4. The Israelite tribes were going home, as it were, to gather together in order to give thanks. One of our worship choruses, an old one, here we are gathered together as a family, bound as one, lifting our voices to the King of Kings. Those lyrics resonate with us because in our twice-born hearts, we long to be one with other believers in order to lift our collective voices and give thanks to Jesus. This psalm is an encouragement for God's people to gather together and to give thanks. Appropriate, don't you think? I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, gathering together in the house of the Lord encourages gladness. And number two, gathering together in the house of the Lord evokes gratitude. Let's talk about encouraging gladness in verses 1 through 4. Have you ever almost blown off coming to church only to power through and attend and be so glad you did? That's just one thing I mean when I say gathering together in the house of the Lord encourages gladness. A lot of people have told me that over the years. Man, I, everything was keeping me from coming to church this morning and I'm, you know, now I'm so glad I did because the message spoke right to me or that song I hadn't heard for years really sparked my heart or I ran into somebody that I didn't expect to see or whatever it might be. But wait a minute, what is this house of the Lord business? Doesn't Pastor Gene know that the church is not a building? 
Let's tweet about that. This building is not the church, but the church is a building. One passage will suffice to prove that it is. The Apostle Paul told the believers in Ephesus, this is in chapter 2 of that letter, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being a cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So yes, it turns out that we are a building. We are the household of God. We are a holy temple. We are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We may not understand all the depth and breadth of that, but it sounds fantastic. Paul went on in his letter to describe this household, the temple, the dwelling place of God, as a regular local gathering of believers. He explained, for example, that God gave pastor teachers to the church, not pastor teachers to believers at large, but to each local gathering. And so um, here I'm Pastor Gene. I might go to another church and still be Pastor Gene, but I'm not their pastor. And so if I went up to teach this morning at their pulpit, there would be problems. Uh, there are no pastors at large. There are pastors to local fellowships. He explained that we are to appoint elders in the church, leaders, not elders to believers at large, but to each local gathering. That ought to be enough for us to say that not only is the church a building, it is most a building when we are gathered together. So big question in society today, should we be gathering together now during COVID-19? What about the mandates to meet? Now there are passionate appeals both to meet and to not meet. Uh, if you follow any social media at all, you know people are very passionate about either obeying all the mandates or obeying some of them or none of them. The latest polling reports that, uh, just to think about this for a minute, two-thirds of believers are neither attending in person nor are they watching online. So since this happened in April, fully two-thirds of people who normally come to church, these are not, you know, th these are people who are churchgoers, they may not all be Christians, but they're churchgoers. Two-thirds of them no longer have any contact with their local fellowship in terms of its services. In the mandates, churches seem to be treated like other venues and ventures. I don't fault non-believing government officials to think of us as less important than a Costco. I mean, if you're, if you're not a believer, you don't care if Calvary Hanford is open, but you do care if Costco is open. But the truth is, Costco is not God's household on earth. It is not his temple, nor is it the dwelling place of God in the spirit. Even when you find that great deal, it is none of those things. The church is, in fact, the most essential building on the earth. Since those things are, in fact, true of us, we meet. Doesn't mean everybody has to attend when we meet. There's room for believers to shelter at home based on their own risk assessment. We've been very careful, because we believe this, to not put a burden on anybody who decides to stay home. A lot of the people in our fellowship are staying home, hopefully watching online, uh, but there's nothing second class about that. Everybody has to make their own decision based on their own research. And I think by extension, as our church meets, even if you're not here, you get some kind of a credit for being a part of the church, if in fact you are. And so God is gracious that way. 
But this brick and mortar building should be open for the real building to meet in it. They want us to meet outside. They've never been to the valley, I guess, but uh, I, for one, am not meeting out. You want to meet outside, you can, but I'll be in here. You've heard this illustration. Somebody says Christianity is a crutch. The believer says in response, it's more than a crutch. It's a hospital. Hospitals are open, so why not churches? If you think that is a ridiculous comparison, are we not the household, the temple, and the dwelling place of God in the spirit on the earth? If nothing else, what we provide must be essential if we are those things. Now, we've all heard conflicting medical opinions. Um, I don't know how much research you're doing, and I don't know how much I'm doing, but uh, there's just the fact of the matter is there's conflicting medical opinions about every aspect of this pandemic from experts. We've heard conflicting political opinions, and without getting into the politics, obviously this has become a political issue, and there are various uh, positions. And there are certainly constitutional issues to sort out. This is a huge issue uh, from the point of view of the U.S. Constitution and our legal system. But frankly, none of those should be our go-to reason for gathering. We gather because when we do, we are God's habitation. We are God's earthly temple. We are the household of God. All those other things have their place. But whether we win the argument medically and politically and constitutionally, in one sense, as important as it is, it doesn't matter because we're going to meet anyway because of who we are and what we are when we meet. And so if somebody asks you, uh, should you meet and why should you meet? Don't, don't immediately go to the Constitution as your uh, reason. Say it's because we're, when we meet, we are the temple of God on earth. We're the habitation of the, of the Lord. We're his household. And then you can go into your other researched reasons. That's fine. So do you understand what I'm saying? We either believe that or not. I think we do believe it. We believe we are those things when we gather but we need to emphasize them and really believe them. And so verse 1, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalms 120 through 134 are the songs of ascent. They were sung as Israelites traveled to Jerusalem to attend one of the three major annual feasts. I came across something that might interest you. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, we read, three times a year on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the Feast of Weeks, and on the Feast of Booths, your males shall appear before the Lord your God. According to Jewish historians, however, this was not strictly followed. Here's how one scholar put it. During the Second Temple period, these verses were not understood to meant that one was obligated to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, but rather that pilgrimage was associated with these festivals. Pilgrimage was considered a commandment that, quote, has no measure, as stated in the Mishnah. The following are things for which no definite quantity is prescribed. Appearing before the Lord is one. Thus, the commandment to go up to Jerusalem might be observed once every few years or perhaps only once in a lifetime. Just want to throw that out there because whenever we mention this, we say, oh, the adult males had to go to Jerusalem every, you know, three times in a year. Uh, and that is not the way the Jews actually interpreted that commandment. They said, uh, eventually you're going to have to make a pilgrimage, but there's no quantity assigned to it. So they're either wiggling out of a long journey 
uh, or you know the, that's the way you actually uh, interpret the law. But just just a point of interest. But whether it was three times annually or less, the psalm, uh, the psalm focuses on the pilgrim being glad. It says to journey with others. Meeting together as the dwelling place of God by the Spirit seems to encourage a kind of gladness that cannot be experienced any other way. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a good one. Uh, You all have a favorite vacation spot, a place that you would rather be. You can go on YouTube and uh, visit that spot. And, you know, I guess if it's a beach spot, you can get some salt water and spray it, uh, you know, in the air and maybe get a pineapple or something like that, wear your bathing suit, whatever you want to do. But you'd still rather be there, right? I mean, virtual vacations are not vacations. Uh, Disneyland, you know, you can ride every ride virtually, even old rides that don't exist anymore. You could spend the day, make some popcorn, sell it for $10 to your kids, uh, make a $20 corn dog, which somebody, I was at Disneyland one time and they said, oh, I, I was, I'm about to get a corn dog, that's when I still ate meat. And, uh, and somebody tweeted back and they said, I wouldn't buy one of those, they're $6.95. I mean, they're, man, I'd pay any price for that, that's a bargain. If I get up there and they say, hey, for you, 20 bucks, all right, I'll peel that off. Let's go. This is a Disneyland corn dog. Can't come to Disneyland with me if you bring your own food. That's just a hard, fast rule. I'm not going to be the guy that carries your lunch pail in there. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. Virtual church, virtual church is not church. It's not bad. It's a good thing that we're online and that people are watching online during COVID and other times. But it's not church. You can't experience the same kind of gladness any other way than by gathering. You just can't because it's not the same. So this pilgrim psalmist is glad even though foot travel to Jerusalem was tedious, uncomfortable, and perilous. The pilgrims had to rely upon hospitality along the way or camp out. Bandits and beasts beset the byways. But he didn't see it as a responsibility. It was a privilege. Gathering together with God's people is a privilege. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It's a verbal expression of gladness for arriving at their destination. Gathering with other believers ought to give you the feeling that you've arrived at a coveted destination. You should want to take it all in and be expecting the Lord to do something in your life or in someone else's life. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Albert Barnes says of this, This literally means joined to itself together. That is, when one part is, as it were, bound closely to another part, not scattered or separate, the walls are all joined together in the house, uh, houses rather, and all united to one another so as to make a compact place. Do you have a compact car? How about a subcompact? Get a few people in there and you're practically sitting on each other. It's kind of embarrassing when you're too big to get into somebody's car. At that point, I think, you know, you need to figure something out. But some of these compact cars, I mean, you don't have to be overweight. You get five, five people can fit my Toyota CHR, but not comfortably. We're not going to be taking any really long trips. It should be a two-seater at best. This compact construction of the city was a picture of God's desire for his people to be connected, spiritually connected as one. The New Testament makes this clear when we read in 1 Peter You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house. We are individual stones that the Lord is mortaring together. So again, 
uh, this idea that we are the building. Now, I used to think of that in a static way, meaning that once I was mortared in, that was my place. So, you know, this is Calvary Hanford, and I've been placed in Calvary Hanford, and this is my place and all that. And, and partly that's true, but now I see it in a more dynamic way, in that every time we gather, we're being put together in the way that will create the most beautiful arrangement for that building. Maybe you know, we can't sit in our favorite seat. We end up sitting behind somebody else and meeting that pe person and it begins a lifelong friendship or we lead them to Christ or something like that. And so uh, the idea is that, yeah, you, you've got gifts and talents and abilities. You're, you're a rock. But when we get together, you can be placed in different uh, configurations, as it were, because the Lord wants to do individual work. When the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Israel was a tribal people, 12 tribes to be exact. They were scattered all over the land and some beyond its borders, but they were one in the Lord, and as they gathered, that was evident. In the book of Exodus, God said, and you shall put into the ark of the testimony which I will give you. The testimony or covenant was the law of Moses by which men might approach God and enjoy fellowship. While pagan cultures were sacrificing their children to Molech or performing all manner of perverted sexual practices to fertility gods, Israel had access to the living God whose throne, at whose throne could be found mercy and grace. He had revealed his nature to Moses. He had revealed his nature and his character. We see in the New Testament that Judaism was a burden being laid upon the average Jew by the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, when you read the New Testament... You see Jesus, the Gospels especially, and you see Jesus' encounter with the religious leaders. And then some of the epistles of Paul where he had to fight the Judaizers who wanted Christians to first convert to Judaism. You think, man, this whole system is a huge burden that no one can bear. But God didn't lay a burden on his people. He wanted them to be glad in their approach to him. Sure, there were rituals and rites that they had to go through, but that's because God is holy. But the idea is that, hey, I'm making a way. There's really no way for you to come to me uh, because of sin. But I'm making a way. And so here's all you have to do, and um, we can have fellowship. So how much more today in the church ought we be glad? Looking back on Judaism, the writer to the Hebrew believer says, and this is, he's saying it to us in comparison, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to be an innumerable company of angels, uh, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things. That's a lot of content. We simply note this morning that the writer was showing his readers that the church is way better off than Israel was. If they were glad under the old covenant, how much more should we be glad exponentially in the new covenant era for what God has done? In the Revelation, the Apostle John saw seven lampstands. Then, as is typical in Revelation, he was told the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Just as an aside, a lot of people, when we bring up the book of the Revelation or prophecy, say, well, Revelation filled with symbols. You, you, no one can know what that means. And almost always, there's a few exceptions, but those exceptions can be sorted out using the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I walk in the midst of the lampstands. Ooh, what does that mean? 
A few verses later, he says, the lampstands are the churches. They're a physical representation of the churches. And so don't believe it that Revelation is undecipherable because it isn't. It's very understandable. John also said, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven, one like the Son of Man, referring to Jesus. Jesus said, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. To put it plainly, Jesus is present when a church gathers in a way he is not present when you are at Starbucks. Understand? It's not mystical. It's just true. Some would object. They say, well, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the midst, so you don't really need the church. Well, that verse in the Gospel of Matthew is smack dab in the middle of the passage on church discipline. The two or three who gather represent the local church to apply church discipline. And so that verse actually proves what we believe, that local churches exist and meet. And so there's no getting around it. There is such a thing as the church. It is the building of God on the earth, especially when we gather. Jesus is in our midst when we do, and that makes me glad. And it also evokes gratitude. That's the rest of our psalm. The end of verse 4 speaks of the believer giving thanks. The remaining verses are a few things that we might be thankful for. Verse 5, for thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Justice. When properly meted out, it is something to be thankful for. We could use some sanctified justice in our world right now, could we not? I'm sure you all have opinions on what's happening in our world today, and I would guess that most of our opinions line up together. A lot of lawlessness, uh, unchecked, violence, unchecked, those kinds of things. Ridiculous comments that people are making that are not being challenged. We could use some sanctified justice. But I think the psalmist was looking further past even our own time. The Lord promised King David through the prophet Nathan, and I quote, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus said at the end of the revelation, I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. So this phrase, the thrones of the house of David, is a reminder that God will establish his kingdom on the earth ruled by Jesus from Jerusalem, from David's throne. And so justice is coming, uh, it, it, you know, and, and it's going to be meted out perfectly by Jesus. And guess what? You and I will be a part of that as well. Because in the church age, God has given authority to the local churches on earth to judge matters. And that is something that is uh, a precursor to, uh, to the millennial kingdom when we also help the Lord judge. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul dealt with the sin of believers suing other believers. Among other things, he argued, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matter? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to be judged between his brethren? And so the believers were suing each other in open court. And Paul said, that's a sin. That's wrong. And, and just think about it. In the future, you're going to be in judgment over angels and uh, co-reigning with Christ. He's saying that even the least spirit-filled believer ought to be able to settle a matter and people ought to be excited about that. 
the problem is we don't think of this as a reason for Thanksgiving anymore because litigation between Christians is rampant. It's become acceptable. I hear all the time about Christians suing other Christians, ministries suing other Christian ministries. And instead of us rising up and saying, hey, that is just wrong, period, unbiblical, period, it's like, well, you know, I can see where that's your last resort. No, there's that. No, it's not. I know one pastor who sued, and now it's a regular part of his life. And not too long ago, he, from the pulpit, invited some people to sue him if they disagreed with him. And so uh, it's weird, isn't it? Isn't that strange? I mean, there are extenuating circumstances. There's, you know, different things that we'd have to look at. But uh, Paul says, don't do that. And so, you know, we can mete out justice as it were now. It's just that when we do submit, over the years, we've had incidents that I've been involved with, some in our church, some elsewhere. And when you do make your judgment, then the party you judge against doesn't, he doesn't go along with these. He says, well, since you didn't rule my way, I'm going to sue anyway. <laughs> and so it's crazy. But we are going to be able to mete out justice. And so let's think about it now. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. The psalmist pilgrim prayed for Jerusalem's peace so he could go on ascending there to celebrate the feasts. If Jerusalem was at war or if it was subjugated, it would be very difficult, as you see. Well, I mean, <laughs> the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and it hasn't been there since. And so, obviously, uh, not at peace. Again, looking forward, we are aware that Israel will have peace for three and a half years when they enter into a covenant with the beast of the revelation, the Antichrist. That is the beginning of the great tribulation. A seven-year covenant between Israel and the man of sin. And that's why the church won't be here for any part of the tribulation, because the rapture is always presented as imminent. And if tomorrow uh, Benjamin Netanyahu signed a peace treaty with some world leader who was doing miracles, we might be in the tribulation. And so the, the rapture couldn't be imminent if that event happens. Uh, I'm not explaining it perfectly, but I think you know what I mean. And so that's what their future is. And then after that, they're going to know tribulation like never before. Some people say, oh, we're in the tribulation now. <laughs> oh, no. You haven't read Revelation lately. Nothing like that has happened. COVID-19 is like a sniffle compared to what's going to be happening in the Revelation. But again, remember, that wrath of God, it's a last-ditch effort on his part to bring sinners to Christ before it's all over. When all hope seems lost, Jesus returns, the Prince of Peace who establishes peace on the earth. End of verse 7, prosperity within your palaces. Prospering is mentioned twice. As Jerusalem prospered, those that loved the Lord could be thankful that there was no hindrance to their pilgrimage. We talk a lot about adversity here. There are also times of prosperity. They can also be dangerous, but with thankfulness at not deserving them, we can enjoy them. Times of prosperity were always perilous to the nation of Israel because they had a tendency to slack off spiritually. Uh, they're, pro they're dangerous to us because we have a tendency to think we deserve them or that we're, we've achieved something, when in reality, it, it's just... Uh, in a sense, arbitrary. It just is happening that way. And so remain humble during times of prosperity and be thankful that though you don't deserve them, God has brought them. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say peace be within you. 
Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. A peaceful Jerusalem was the necessary context to enjoy the presence of the Lord in his temple, obviously. This was also the greeting of one Jew to another. As they passed by, they would say, peace be within you. And it's a, you know, it's a kind of a joyous, exciting recollection of what's going on. Peace be within you. We're in Jerusalem together and we're worshiping and it's the festival and we have all this history and all. So peace be within you. The psalmist was inspired to seek the good of Jerusalem so that all could come and give thanks. He was also inspired to seek the good of individual Jews. At the end of planes, trains, and automobiles on the train home, Neil thinks back on things Dell said or didn't say. He realizes Dell wasn't on his way home to spend Thanksgiving with his family. His wife, Marie, in fact, had been dead eight years. Neil goes back to the station, gets Dell, and brings him home to celebrate with his family. And that's what we're about, is it not? Inviting folks to salvation to give the Lord thanks for his work on our behalf. We are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit when we gather together. Yes, the Spirit permanently indwells believers. And yes, God is omnipresent. But by his own description of the church as a lampstand, Jesus said that he attends our gatherings in a special way. It's not mystical. It's simply a fact. And we don't need to do anything about it. Uh, you know, not to, uh, on the one end, you know, with, the, let's say, the Pentecostal church. Sometimes they have a sense there that you're, you're trying to get God to come. In their sense, it's the Holy Spirit through various gifts of the Spirit. And they're just, you know, they get louder and louder and more boisterous until finally there's like a breakthrough of the Holy Spirit. And then people start doing things all over the auditorium. And afterward, they say the Spirit was here and all. Uh, on the other end, there's uh, churches that are really deep into ritual. And a lot of Christians are being drawn more to a ritualistic Christianity today because they feel something when they, you know, with the chanting or, or, or with the silence or with the censors or with whatever it might be. And the Lord says, hey, you gather, I'm there. You don't have to do anything about it. There's no invitation. Uh, he does say to one of the churches, to Ephesus, a good church, he says, if you don't get it together, I'm going to remove my lampstand. And uh, you're going to have some problems. Uh, but other than that, barring that, uh, we don't have to do anything to get Jesus to be here this morning. He's here. The question is, are we open to having him minister to us? Gather and be glad. Gather and be grateful. Let's pray.